It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, September 12th. As promised, it's part two of our U.S. Open recap, breaking down everything that happened at the final major of the season. Of course, yesterday, I nerded out. We talked a lot of tennis. We got into the tactics. What were my takeaways from what I saw throughout the course of championship weekend? But of course, as promised, we also got to take a 30,000-foot view now that we are done with this event. What did we learn from the two weeks in New York? Where do we go from here? What are some storylines all of you tennis fans should be aware of as we head towards the home stretch of this 2023 season? And if we're going to try to tackle a task so monumental, you know I like to have some help along the way. As promised, joining me on today's show is a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast, essentially a co-host of the mini break, unless he's busy on the grounds as he was writing countless pieces for tennis.com, where of course he serves as editorial producer uh, throughout the course of the U.S. Open and throughout the course of every tennis season. Of course, we know him as our dear friend, David Kane. DK, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you back. Are you recovered? How are you feeling, my friend? Writing articles and interacting with all of my fan. It was really just... (laughs) A phenomenal three weeks. I don't know how I feel about being part two, but I'm going to take that as the me being the main event of this recap podcast and not second banana. <laughs> well, no, it's because we had scheduling issues yesterday. I was going to leave those aside. Yeah, it was going to be a one parter. But, you know, again, why make one part when you can make two? That's our ethos here at Crack Rackets. And so it is great to have you back and, you know. You were kind enough to mention there was a mini break listener or two in New York who recognized you, who was kind enough to give some props to this show. So shout out to your fan. We appreciated his love. Um, Yeah, look, it was a fun two weeks. We can get right into it. You were on the grounds. Let's start with some plugging. You got the chance to chat with oh so many different players throughout your time in New York. What stood out to you? What's the piece that's going to age best? I mean, first of all, shout out to my fan who messaged me (laughs) on an app that I'm going to say rhymes with finder and <laughs> said that I was the perfect intersection of tennis, housewives and pop culture, but I wasn't able to load the message. I don't know if I was blocked immediately after sending that 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 phenomenal message, but I would love to reconnect. I was sort of a misconnection there. I would love to see this is a, this is not a visual podcast, but I'm, I'm doing an, an eye to eye motion. Uh, it was it was an interesting three weeks. I mean, it started out some phenomenal weather turned into sort of a hell on earth <laughs> the last couple of days and then a lot of rain uh, the final Sunday and Saturday and Sunday, which is never fun because you want to be able to kind of take in and appreciate and get nostalgic about your weeks on on the ground. And you kind of have to end up running out of sight as fast as you can because the weather is just so uh, inhospitable. But um, yeah, I got to speak to a lot of players, did a, a ton of writing, did a ton of uh, uh, beat reporting, uh, covering all the the, the headline storylines and controversies from the, uh, the U.S. Open world. So uh, Anything you want to ask me about in particular, I'm happy to talk about. Well, 
I'm glad you brought up Housewives here early. You reminded me something oh, that I thought was pressing. And I want to give a shout out, first of all, to user Johnny Bravo 33. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Johnny Bravo, great cartoon from back in the day. That's This is the comment on Apple. And I promise I'm going to bring this back to Housewives here. Here's our opening tangent. Here's his comment. Solid podcast with solid takes. Um, the Daily Host feels very spot on with his analysis of all things tennis. He just needs to keep the guest contributors to the topic of tennis and stay out of politics. And so the reason I bring all that up, DK, is I saw the tweet yesterday, should the housewives unionize? That's the question I think we have to lead today's show with. We're in a very interesting situation in sort of the <laughs> housewives universe, because I think I would say most of the most ardent housewives fans on social media okay. are quite left leaning. And so I would, you would think they would be quite pro union. However, they are very anti Bethany Frankel, who is the <laughs> at the forefront of this unionization effort. They feel like she's in this for clout and in this for attention, uh, a long time running uh, housewife. Some might argue one of the best housewives, the Michael Jordan, perhaps, of housewives, certainly according to to Frankel herself. I, I feel like, you know, given how much these women have contributed to to my life and happiness over the years, if they would like some streaming residuals, I'm all for it. And any other additional efforts to keep them from being further exploited. Uh, perhaps Bethany is not the ideal messenger, but I'm hoping that we can kind of come around towards the the greater good here and not get totally lost in the, the message versus the messenger. Yeah, I guess, Johnny Bravo, first of all, thank you for the comment. Always appreciate it. That's the middle ground, right? That's politics, but it's housewives politics. Guess so. we won't be doing the monkey anytime soon. Yeah, so the stakes aren't particularly high, but the do the monkey. That's good. Took me a second. Oh, you did watch the cartoon. He knows the dance. Yeah. I mean, again. Two like, cartoon Fridays, everybody. Come on. Much. Elder millennial speaking. He's been a recurring appearer by story on this podcast, but my roommate Michael does a very good Johnny Bravo impersonation. It's it's one of his funnier bits that he does. So anyways, we'll, we'll save that for a different time here on this show. We'll get back to the U.S. Open where, again, it was a really fun two weeks. Let's just go chronologically as we break down what's happened. And of course, a shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point for their support here at tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Let's start with the women's final. I mean, again, you had the rising, now world number one, Arena Sabalenka. She had dropped just one set on her way to the final, but of course that one set came in a dramatic love six, seven six, seven six victory over Madison Keys that saw her a set five three down rip off twelve straight points and one of the most amazing fashions I've ever seen. And I said this on yesterday's show I was watching with my college roommate, who I can't emphasize this enough, DK, immediately was drinking the Sabalenka Kool-Aid. Was just like, what is this? How have I been missing out on this? And I'm like, because you don't listen to the show, my friend. Um, was your roommate and- Dave Portnoy? <laughs> No. Um, uh, two Michigan alums, not roommates. Um, nevertheless, watching... You know, again, watching Sabalenka get through that match, watching her take the first set fairly comfortably over Coco Goff, you felt like, okay, this is a player ascending to the world number one, a player who reached the semifinals of all four majors in the same season for the first time since Serena 2016. The analytics have loved her. It's a crowning moment. It all makes sense. Coco Goff was not going to roll over. She was not willing to go away quietly. And as she had all two weeks in New York, she just found a way. 2-6-6-3-6-2, first slam title, obviously, for the 19-year-old, I believe, first teenage American to win the U.S. Open since Serena Williams. Obviously, you know, we're going to do a segment later, who is now the next player, the Caroline Wozniacki heir apparent to the first slam title, as I want to call it. But, you know, 
Coco Golf was on that list. We've had the Coco Golf forehand conversation numerous times when you've come on this show. Now you look at her summer, 18 and 1. She wins in DC. She wins in Cincinnati. She wins the US Open. It's not like, the, I said this yesterday, it's not like when she made the French Open final last year where she played one seed in Elisa Mertens and didn't face a top 20 player the entire time on her way there. That wasn't the case this time. She faced a Muhova. She faced an inform Ostapenko. She faced an Arena Sabalenka, who again is now the world number one. She beat all of them. She beats Iga uh, in Cincinnati. You know, again, her only loss is three sets to Jessica Pagula during this North American hardcourt stretch. It's the, it, you know, again, I guess the question for Coco Goff is we have always, we'd always circled her as a potential. She has the capability to eventually be a tier one player. I guess the question is after this North American hardcourt stretch, is she unequivocally in that tier one for you? What were your takeaways from seeing this run in person? I think taking Coco Goff's summer into totality, she did a phenomenal job of ticking off every item on the list that her so-called haters from to so-called tennis experts <laughs> have could say against her. You know, can she be consistent? Can she work on being more aggressive? Can she beat players like Iga Svantec? Can she beat a big hitter having a fairly decent day? And throughout the summer. She did all of that in a way that is really phenomenal and really impressive. You don't see players upend their career arc in such a way, uh, the way that they did it. it. But in the end, what was sort of interesting to me was the way the Coca Golf ultimately won the U.S. Open specifically was really ne- not necessarily with her offensive improvements, but in some ways with a renewed commitment to her defense. I mean, we could talk about the... Uh, in, I don't know if I really necessarily uh, – I may bump a little bit on the informness of Aliona Ostapenko on that quarterfinal. Sure. There was nary form to be found. Seven on that points, issue. 15 informed. unforced errors. Yeah, yeah it was just tough. And a lot step. of stuff out. But a yeah. testament to the way that Coco was able to play great defense. And I think if we're going to talk about technical improvements, the forehand held up against Ostapenko and the forehand held up uh, against Sabalink. I turned to my uh, – my, my colleague, sister soulmate, Vika Chiesa, about a game and a half into the final against Sabalenka. And I said, has Coco hit a backhand yet? Because it really seemed like Sabalenka came into that final with a pretty clear tactic, which is hit it to her forehand, which is, you know, I think still at the end of the day, that's going to be the shot people are going to continue to pinpoint. It seemed to become going off the boil a little bit towards the middle of the first set to the beginning of the second set, it actually seemed like Sabalenka was on track to winning that second set. The first couple of games, Coco was serving some double faults, just didn't seem settled. But Arena just started going for too, too much and just kept pressing, 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 hitting so many balls out. Coco gets the crowd involved. And once the crowd got involved at 2-1 in the second set, it was pretty much over. Coco just did not miss for the rest of the match to her credit. And Sabalenka really did not change her tactic, just kept going for as much as she possibly could. Hit, still hit some phenomenal shots in rally, but just could not get the right balance of ending the point effectively. And it was kind of a brutal watch in the end, but a testament to the improvements that Coco was able to make technically to not break down because she was facing down a tremendous amount of power the emotional stakes of being at your home slam in front of a home crowd that wants you to win so badly. You know, 
coming out of this, is she a top tier player? Um, I would say she's 1A. I don't know if she's top tier just in the sense that the game that won her the slam is not necessarily the game that I think she will need to be a consistent force. I still think that she needs to be more aggressive. She won't always get a Sabalenka overpressing in a Grand Slam final. So I think that's, or even an Ostapenko overpressing in her quarterfinal. I think she's going to have to find that balance that she was able to find against Shvantec. It's there. She's capable of doing it. The balance that she found against Mukova in the semifinals, it's there. So it's not to say that it's absent, but I think I still want to see her win that match with playing a different tactic. But at the end of the day, the tactic worked. So it's who am I to criticize it? And she's a Grand Slam champion and and and, and quite a good one at that. Well, the thing that I enjoyed so much, and you used the word there, balance, and just the variety we saw on her way to this U.S. Open title, every game plan she had to employ was a little bit different. You know, again, dealing with the aggression, then dare I say the sporadic or spontaneous aggression of Siegmund in round one and finding your rhythm after dropping that first set, kind of, you know, again, being a front runner and blitzing Amira Andreeva and, you know, being a front runner by simply being consistent against an Ostapenko, having to raise your aggression against someone like a Wozniacki who was given nothing for free or, you yeah, know, again, that was having- that was her most impressive performance to me, yeah. the third set against Wozniacki, the way she was able to just ratchet up the aggression and just basically hit Wozniacki off the court. That was, to me, a moment where I said, okay, she is in this. Yeah, or the second set against Mertens. Mertens was playing unreal in that third round. And, you know, again, played a really good first set of tennis to to sort of weather that storm, get through that one comfortably. Then you mentioned it, the complete match against Muhova, where you have the 45-minute interruption. And, you know, again, she's able to sustain her focus, able to just she had to be because those are two really complete players. A lot of similarities in the games of Goff and Muhova. Goff gets through that. To your point, she weathers the storm of the informed Sabalenka in set one. And you're absolutely right. There were a wave of unforced errors. You look at the final count, Goff 19, Sabalenka 46. Sabalenka certainly hit herself out of that match, but... You know, again, foundationally, fundamentally, that's what makes Coco Goff so dangerous moving forward. She's still 19 years old, and now you are starting to see her step in behind that forehand more comfortably like she had to do against Wozniacki. She's always had the hands at the net, but it does feel like she is more willing to press forward early in rallies, use her speed to beat you two spots. Now, again, didn't have to do much of that against Sabalenka, just 7 of 10 at the net. But, you know, in the Mukova match, 9 of 18, and I, I think that sells a little short how much she was moving forward, drawing those errors on the passes from Mukova. One, you know, you said 1A. It's just so interesting because... Yeah, it's, you know, again, coming into this U.S. Open, I felt pretty firm about the top five. Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina, Goff, Pagula. I do think that, you know, again, Muhova, Vondrusova, given how they performed, have to be dragged into that pretty clear-cut conversation of seven. Is it now maybe a three-tiered top seven where the top two, Sabalenka, Sviantek, have earned that benefit of the doubt? Then you maybe go Rabakina, Goff, that... 1B or tier 2-ish, then you get to the Pagula, Muhova, Vondrusova grouping. It, It is fascinating. I don't like, the thing is she's 19. That's the scariest part is you talk about needing to make improvements, DK. I think my biggest takeaway is you saw those improvements manifest themselves in the results she put forward this summer. Like that's 
that's the biggest win. That's the 30,000-foot view is now she has the big result, and she's proven that, yeah, I'm going to continue to get better at these things as well. That did tickle me, the fact that she was talking about conquering uh, her many trials and tribulations to finally, finally, at the age of 19, win a slam. After days, some might say weeks of struggle, (laughs) she finally won her first slam. I'm I'm being largely facetious because she did her first WTA match at 14, 15. I mean, she's been here. She's been around for a long time. Fun fact, how many slams has she played? 19 years old. How many majors main draws? Um... She played her first main draw, what, 2019 Wimbledon? So yeah. two. I have the number uh, in front of me if you want to just guess it. It's 17. I don't know why we're yeah, playing the I mean, I was, it's basically yeah. all of them since 2019 yeah. Wimbledon. So, 17 yeah. majors is a healthy. I like that it's, I've conquered all of these demons. But like 17 majors is not an insignificant sample size of majors. That's a good number. No, and I, I think if the takeaway, I think you could make the argument that the takeaway for golf is that she is figured out more than one way to win a tennis match, that there was a way that she was winning that was successful and got her into the top 10, but there was another way that she had maybe not mastered that was keeping her from making that next step and winning seven matches in a row. And maybe the answer is she doesn't need to be that aggressive against a Sabalenka in the final. Maybe if she was against a different opponent, maybe she would have had it adopted a different tactic. She didn't have to do the, the, the aggressive stance that she adopted against Andreeva or Wozniacki. So I think, that in and of itself, I mean, this is a testament to her tennis mind, which I always thought was perhaps underrated because she seems like someone who's so grounded and aware of what's going on. I was really fascinated by her comments about Wozniacki, the identification that Goff felt watching Wozniacki win her slam after, quote, all the people have been talking about her. And, you know, I guess presumably the fact that she didn't think she people didn't think she had what it took to win a slam. She finally proved that her doubters wrong. I found the comments about reading um negative critical tweets right before the final to be an interesting one it was sort of a um quite a time to re- to reveal that um that predilection <laughs> or habit where it was you know i'm engaging in this uh, fairly destructive habit but i just want to slam so there's really not anything you could say about it and she did say to her credit that uh she doesn't recommend that everybody do that because i think well, the given the conversation we've had about mental health over the years, it seems like, oh my God, <laughs> that doesn't seem healthy or sustainable. But maybe, again, a testament to her tennis mind, she is able to engage and disengage, use that to fuel her fire in the way that she wants. But it, it, the more I thought about it over the last 48 hours, it was a strange a strange revelation that I didn't expect from Coco, who I thought would be a bit more unplugged from tennis when she's not on the court. Yeah, I think... Well, I, I think that's a whole discussion as well. And I am curious because you were there for the press conferences. You were there and got to see her embrace that Arthur Ashe crowd. It did feel like Coco Goff knew she had the environment. She had New York backing her and embrace that. That was so, a mature performance. The, yeah. the way she was able to channel the crowd, effectively the con- right conduct, yes. them, con- conduct them into the upset was, was really interesting. Yeah, and look – I do think it's worth adding the piece. Coco Goff has been in the limelight, as you mentioned, since she was 14 years old in the social media era. And as someone, as a byproduct of that era, she's on Instagram. She's on Twitter. She understands how to find the comments if she's looking for them. And it did feel, and I say this in the best possible sense, she was spicy. Like, we got a little extra spice out of Coco Goff all week long in that she was on this path to as you put, you know, again, silence any doubters. And I kind of loved it. Like, I, I do wonder, because again, this is someone who, since she was 14 years old, has been a phenomenal interview, has always shined when the limelight has been 
shown uh, has been put upon her, I would say, by the press and by the media. And that said, to have that sort of limelight cast on her at such a young age, you can only imagine what that does to someone. And it's amazing how, and I say this in the best sense, normal she seems to have remained through all of that. How you know grounded and how self-confident and so sure of self that she is at 19 years old. It's remarkably admirable. Obviously, she has been pointing, been pointed to as a potential superstar in this game as such. Did you feel that on the ground? Was this the crowning moment? Are we going to get the Coco? Go- you know, again, it's a writer's strike, but we'd see her on Colbert. We'd see her, I bet, on Fallon for sure. Like, I don't know if she's traveling west to go do Kimmel, but I'm sure we would have seen her on all the shows. I imagine we'll see her on Good Morning America if we haven't already. We probably didn't. I just missed it. Like, are we going to get the Coco Golf press tour? I certainly hope so. I think she's very effortlessly charismatic. I think she is charming. Um, in contrast to her guest appearance on that show a couple of months ago, that was a bit of a wooden performance from Coco and sort of didn't really show her to the best of her ability. I think she's just so great when she's just herself and natural. I mean, she did the uh, her Instagram live the morning after and was just, you know, just chatting away with fans and and answering questions and just such a um, a bright light just for 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 the tour and the, someone who seemingly is so unaffected by this, which made me, which was then surprising to hear that she is somewhat very much immersed in uh, the, the totality, I guess, of tennis Twitter. You know, I think that was what was interesting to me. The fact that she got such an overall negative view from the, the space that she's inhabiting on social media, because I think the, again, to quote Casper, the so-called tennis experts, I think have generally been quite, neutral to positive about Coco's chances over the last couple of years. I, I, I think there has been a, an effort not to rush to judgment on the future of her career to the extent that there was criticism. There was certainly criticism in the immediate aftermath of Wimbledon. I think that was the first time we were really having conversations about her technique, about her you know, long-term potential. But overall, it, it's been quite positive. So I think it seemed like she was speaking more to the just rank and file tennis Twitter who maybe never thought that she was worth the hype that that we at the top were giving her. Um, but I, again, the fact that she was able to let it fuel her fire and not let it spin out and control, hopefully, again, that there is there is balance to this, <laughs> to the theme, be, that being the theme of the episode, the fact that she's maybe not overindulging in it. She's getting just enough from it to get her to go out there and prove people wrong, but not getting totally consumed by it. I mean, I imagine the volume is only going to go up as the more her profile rises and the expectations also get higher. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of fallout perhaps still to come from the next couple of months, but um, hopefully this is just a testament The where she's gotten to so far is a testament to how far she'll continue to go. And even without this 18 and one North American hardcore stretch, let's be clear, 27 and 12 outside of the North American hardcore run. She's had a phenomenal season. You know, again, mm, the- no, Oh, <laughs> no. I, like I mean, that. I listen, I'm sorry. Like, yes, there was a lot of criticism after Wimbledon, but I think the reason why people felt comfortable criticizing her after Wimbledon was because I like this. the career was stagnating. I mean, Palapadosa, Palapadosa went into that Madrid press conference and laughed about the fact that she hit everything to Kokolov's forehand and bageled her. I mean, like okay. we were having, it was turning and it really came to a head after Wimbledon. But I still think even over the course of the year leading up to Wimbledon, I don't think there was a tremendous amount of gross negativity at the top of the media discourse. I think Coco so was then, hitting a wall. 
I rescind. You're right. Not phenomenal. It was a status quo. It was, it was look, solid. She's top it 10. was like an like, Anna Kornikova cool. season. You know, she was beating everyone she was supposed to beat. She was having trouble beating people that we were now expecting her to yeah. beat or at least make a better challenge of. She got bageled by Sabalenka and Indian Wells, got bageled by Bedosa Madrid, you know, underperformed in Rolling Carros and really underperformed, underperformed Wimbledon. I mean, this is, are you a top 10 player or are you competing for a slam? And, and now <laughs> she answered that question to her credit, yeah. to her well, eternal credit. She turns it around. Perfect framing. I agree. You were right. I was wrong. Now, again, 8-1 and one during, against top 20 opponents during this stretch, 5-1 and one against top 10 opponents during this stretch, wins over Iga, Sabalenka, Mukova, who have been three of the top seven players on the year as well. A remarkable, uh, a remarkable accomplishment for Coco, who now, again, to her credit, had she not won a slam, 22, 23 years old, it would unequivocally have become one of the big storylines entering every major, particularly anytime she was on home soil in New York. To put that question to bed this early in her career, I mean, yes, there will be pressure. Can she win more? Where does she go from here? But that's the best sort of pressure. You know, again, there's a huge difference between trying to win two and trying to win your first. And she's removed that burden and you know, again, now obviously you look at the way the rest of Championship Weekend and the rest of the weeks, uh, the two weeks unfolded. The question I want to ask DK, because one of my biggest takeaways coming out of New York, I feel like I know who the 10 best players in the world are in the women's game for maybe, I don't know, the first time since the mid-2010s or, you know, maybe even a hair before that. We've just been in this era of first-time slam champions, this era of... You know, again, different players early in their ascension, whether it be an early Iga, an early Sabalenka, an early, you know, Kennan. And obviously you had a little run of Ashley Barty, but she was in and out so quickly. I feel pretty good coming out of slam season in 2023 saying, no, you know, these are the 10 best players in the world. And so rather than, you know, again, I, I did ask you to prepare a list. If it's easier, if you'd prefer, we can just go through my list because I I, I feel like the names are going to be pretty similar. Like, I, I feel like we have a steady group up top. I mean, I'm mostly intrigued by your eight through 10 because yeah, I think we okay. do agree on the top seven, but yeah. I, I think where we are right now is where I thought we were heading right after the Middle East swing. Cause I think there was a lot of those names, those, you know, Coco and Jess making the quarterfinals, Krejcikova, uh, Svantec, Sabalenka making semis, you know, like that was where we were headed. And then we've had a bit of a dip and now we come out of the U S open and it kind of feels like, okay, this is the top eight who making it to Cancun will not be a total. Well, huh? Surprise. But at the same time, our defending champion of that WTA finals from last year, Caroline Garcia, though still in the top 10, unlikely to qualify. So I think that's sort of the, the, the dichotomy in which we currently find ourselves. So I'm curious who rounds out your rankings more than who tops it. I agree. I think there are four segments of debate that we'll do the first three quickly. Sabalenka, yeah, come on. No, no, <laughs> quick segments, I promise. This is all within the one block. Um, Sabalenka versus Fiontek, one, two. You look at the overall number, again, Sabalenka, 15-11 on the year. Sviantec, 56-10 now overall on the season. Sviantec, the slight advantage in win percentage. Sviantec, I believe, the slighted, uh, excuse me, 10 quarterfinals to Sabalenka's 11. But you look, Sviantec, four titles to Sabalenka's three. Sabalenka does make semifinals or further at all the majors, but it's not as though Ika didn't make the second week at all of them because she did. It's a very close race. You know, again, head-to-head, they've had success against one another as well. Who's your one? Who's your two coming out of the U.S. Open? 
it's hard because we had this conversation before where I feel like some, in some ways, the way that Sabalenka ended some of these slams kind of in some ways erases the, the, yeah. the, the fact that she got there. Three, I mean, at the end three of the day, set losses, by the way, for her at the majors this year. Three, three th- set yeah, losses. Three, like, three as close setters. As she get. And where matches, she always in a comfortable position. Yes, that's the, that's the point. Up five, two on Mukova, yeah. up four to set and four, two on Jabir and up a set and on, on Coco looking Goff. good against Coco. I think ultimately for Svantec, she needed a deeper run at one of the other three slams. I mean, now when you look at the total again, the totality <laughs> of um of the Svantec and Sabalenka seasons, you have fourth round win, quarterfinal, fourth round for Sabalenka, or rather for Svantec and for Sabalenka, you have win, semifinal, semifinal, final. You know, Sabalenka wins. I think that's I think even Svantec would 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 point to that. That I think the way that Sabalenka's been able to peak at the slams gives her the edge. Yeah, this one's an easy point to play. Do I think Sabalenka is better than Iga Shvantec? I do not. Has yeah, she had that's the to better? say like yeah. the long-term potential, yeah, who it, I think exactly. is still in long-term position. It's definitely, it's still, it's still Iga because I think yeah. Iga still has the sharper mind and I don't think would have lost any of those three matches that Sabalenka lost. Weirdly enough, she just didn't put herself in position to be in those matches. So it's yeah. sort of a six of one, half a dozen of the other. I agree. I also think like, again, Rabakina played perfect in Australia. Uh, the Ostapenko match was something in New York. Yeah. You were there for that one. I mean, Ostapenko just had the level on the night, did she not? May have left after the first set. <laughs> Deeply <laughs> regret it because by the time I got through the door, it was five love in the third. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sabal- uh, it was a, it was an interesting um, interesting observation on the way that Ostapenko is a player who could still get in Shvantec's head. The fact that she's now 4-0 against, against Shvantec. Weird, but does that really take away anything from Iga's overall season? Not necessarily. I mean, it was peak Ostapenko, peak Rabakina in Australia, exactly. and inspired Svitolina at Wimbledon. I mean, you could certainly talk, speak to the extenuating circumstances. It's just unfortunate for Svantec. They all happened relatively earlier in slams than they did for Sabalenka. Yeah, I, I agree. Perfectly put. And again, at least I this year. Yeah, I, I think why Sabalenka right now has the lead in the player of the year race is because she's the one who did something different. You know, again, status quo for Iga is now be world number one, be world number two. And for the record, or be one of be in the conversation for best player in the world. And under no circumstance has Iga fallen out of that conversation after her 2023. It's been a very good 2023, particularly for someone who just turned 22 this year, particularly for someone who did have to defend so many points throughout the course. Although Iga will tell you it's not about defending. You can't you cannot defend only gain. (laughs) Very, very true. Um, And again, she still has opportunities to do so little pockets here and there down the home stretch of the season. If Iga takes the year end championships. It's a really fun player of the year race. And so I agree. Sabalenka won, Iga two for now. That's segment one. The next part of the debate, I think, is a – well, it's not fair to put Von Drusova in – you know what? We're making it we're, – we're condensing. We're going from two to three. Uh, for Excuse me, from four to three. Um, next part of the debate, the three through seven. Goff, Rabakina. I'm going to go Pagula 5, Von Drusova 6, Muhova 7. I don't feel great about that. Is that about right with you? I mean, I think you got to put Von Drusova up a little bit higher as the Wimbledon yeah. champion, who then had yeah. her career best stretch through what has historically been her worst swing. I mean, back-to-back quarterfinal, or rather, uh, round of 16, quarterfinal in Cincinnati, and then quarterfinals of um, U.S. Open. 
what happens if the elbow is not a little bit healthier against Madison Keys that ultimately pulled her out of the women's doubles with Barbara Stritzova, which was my personal heartbreak of the tournament. I was very much looking forward to the sunset ending that Barbara Stritzova seemed to be on the road to getting. And then Von Trusova felled by those uh, extra duty balls that uh, injured her her elbow is what she blamed uh, on the injury. I think ultimately Von Trusova reigning Grand Slam champion over a Jessica Pagula, who to her credit, I think made strides this season, did maybe ticked half the boxes that Coco Golf was looking to tick off, but ultimately did not make that deep run at a slam that we were hoping to to see from her. So I, I would put Von Drusifa behind um behind Coco. I think certainly Coco, the way that she's conducted herself for the last couple of months, puts her very much in that number three spot over a Von Drusifa or Rabakina. Um and then Pagula, and then who was uh, Mukova? Yeah. Uh, Mukova, Pagula is an interesting debate too, because I think yeah, I don't think I expected one. another semifinal for Mukova so soon. You know, I think the, the way that the body just about held up, <laughs> I think like in the last, you know, last couple days of that match against um, Coco Goff, maybe not optimum health herself, had that big sleeve on the arm, was all taped up as well. But I think, I don't know if it necessarily affected her play uh, in the semifinal. Everybody knows how much I love to speculate on injuries and how they impacted performances. But um, I think this is by far Mukova's most consistent season. So, I mean, and did better in slams than Pagula. So that's, that's an interesting debate as well. I think they're all, I would put them all in a similar tier. Again, you look at the records, Pagula 46 and 15, 75% win percentage golf, 45 and 13, 78% win percentage. Muhova 36 and 13, 74% win percentage. Von Drusova 38 and 13, 75% win percentage. They've all, you know, the one who lags a little bit, or excuse me, I forgot Rabakana 42 and 12, 78% win percentage. They've all been really good. Like, you're winning over 70% of your matches. You should be in the year-end finals conversations, particularly when you're a Von Drusva and you won a Wimbledon. When you're a Muhova, you made a, a slam final and another slam semi. Obviously, Rabakina, Australian Open final. Like, these seven have been the best seven at every event we've seen this season. They've been the ones in quarterfinals, in semifinals, in finals, ultimately capturing titles it's a really good top seven heading into these year-end finals in Cancun, as David likes to call it, the WTA spring break that will end the season. You know, again, where you where do you organize the tiers? I mean, if you go through the first third of this, because Rabakina was so clearly in that top three conversation through the first third, I have to keep her at four. Yeah, Von Drusova should be five. I just think Pagula's been the most consistent of them across the season, but they've all been very good all year long. I'll go Pagula six. I'll go Mukova seven. And then the final segment of the debate is, again, eight, nine, ten. Where do you go? I feel pretty good about my eight, nine, ten, DK. I have Madison Keys, quarterfinals Wimbledon, semifinals U.S. Open, a whisker away from beating Arena Sabalenka. Again, served for the match, even though she was broken at love. You know, it's back-to-back years. She's made a hard-court semifinal, which I just think matters. Someone 28 years old that we've seen make a slam final. We saw that peak level from her this season. It's her highest win percentage season of her career. I think she's the eighth best. You know, she's pretty clearly my eight. I have Jabur at nine, out of respect. And then I went Ostapenko 10 because I think she's shown this season that that ceiling belongs in that number 10 spot. And she has quietly had one of her most consistent seasons. And if she does choose to play, Ostrava, Linz, you know, again, can put herself still. She's a little bit behind in the points race. I think she's sitting at 12th, but it's like 800 points behind Jabur. 
probably not going to make the year on finals this season, but can certainly put herself in the top 10 race from a rankings perspective. I also just think we've seen the ceiling. Like we've seen her now beat Iga in consecutive seasons. We've seen her, you know, beat Goff in Australia earlier this year, playing lights out tennis to get to another quarterfinal. I think she's been one of the 10 best players in the world. You know, we saw her run on grass courts as well. And this is a former French Open champion. I just think across surfaces, what her ceiling is capable of. I look at the other players she's competing with. A Kvitova, no, hasn't been consistent enough. Bencic, I don't want you to put me in jail. So no. Kasakina, no. Sakari, no. Like, I just think Ostapenko has to be my 10. I feel pretty good. Keys, eight. Jabur, nine. Ostapenko, 10. Two ceiling plays. And then someone who has been in that mix for two and a half years in Jabur. Like, I think that's our top 10. I think those are the right three names, especially because okay. when you try to consider the alternatives, it's like, oof. I mean, yeah, the only exactly. one. I mean, it's the fact that Krejcikova we did not even mention Krejcikova. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the one where I feel Yowch. bad about. Yeah, and I also, I also want to say quickly, not to cut you off, but like, there's a spot waiting for Chinwen. Like, it's just waiting. It's, uh, it's, it's not it's, the name I was going to say. But oh, are you, yeah. okay, good. I like this. Well, we'll get to that next, but your thoughts on the 10. Okay, so I think those are the right three names. Okay. Not the order I would put them in because while Madison Keys did somewhat supersede my expectations, I did not think she was going to beat. I kind of thought she could beat Samsonova. I really didn't think she was going to beat Pagula. And then I ultimately, the match with Sabalenka went how I kind of expected it to go. I mean, the fact of the matter is you need it to win these matches. And she doesn't have it. She was up a set in 5-3, love 15. You know, this much of a shot on off the Sabalink inside in forehand, it goes out, it's love 30 for keys. And I still don't think she closes it out. I just don't think she has it. And I think she's still looking for it. And I think she comes to press and is trying to take positives away from this. But that would have been my upset of the millennium if she had managed to close <laughs> out Sabalenka and make the final. And then I don't think she would have won the final. I, someone was trying to tell, it was, I think my, one of my good friends was telling me that she thought the keys would have won the final against golf. And I, one thing about Coco is that she's got a phenomenal mind. And I think she absolutely would have destroyed keys in that final. I think, you know, keys is a great tennis player. I love that style of tennis. It is to watch her hit the ball breathtaking, the serve, everything is huge. It's like her, there is a bigness. There is a, a Grecianness of, of to her game where you just feel like she hers is a game built for a tennis court atop Mount Olympus. And I think <laughs> the court in this analogy is about, I don't know, 10 feet longer and 30 feet wider. I just think that she's not her game is not necessarily built for tennis as it exists for us mere mortals. And that's unfortunately to her detriment, because I think that's why she's not made another Grand Slam final. And the only player she's ever beaten in a Grand Slam semifinal is Coco Vandeweghe. I mean, as much as we were talking about Sabalenka's semifinal record, I mean, it was something had to give. <laughs> and, and I think good for Sabalenka that she was able to crack that um, crack that streak in the way that she did. So I would put her behind Jabur, who I think overall has had a better year. And I would maybe even put her behind Ostapenko, who I think, you know, is becoming more and more of a reliable spoiler in big tournaments. And I think that's, I think if she'd managed to beat Coco and made the semifinals, that probably would have definitely put her at number eight. But I think Shabor still through the, to put her year in context, I think deserves that number eight spot. Certainly played a phenomenal match against Sabalenka to make that Wimbledon final. Um, and my honorable mention would have been Samsonova. I was very annoyed that Samsonova did not have a better run. She was my pick to make the semifinal out of that quarter, out of the Keys quarter. So maybe that's a little bit of, of resentment on my part uh, for Keys, undue resentment perhaps. But I just thought that the way that Samsonova played this summer, 
she felt very much due for a deep run at a major. And I think that she, her game is just talk about someone who seems very much bolts for this game. I'm still waiting for, for her breakthrough. She was my honorable mention. Uh, Chin Wen is another good one though, for sure. Yeah. I mean, look again, keys 33 and 12, 73% win percentage. Jabur 27 and 12, 69% win percentage. Ostapenko 32 and 17, 65% win percentage. You know, Kvitova won Miami. She's 27 and 11 overall on the year. I just, or 28 and 11, excuse me. I just, I haven't seen enough at the majors. Miami was really the only notable thing you'll take from this season for Kvitova. But what a thing to take away. Yeah, I mean, Krejcikova not consistent enough. Bencic, the quietest 31 and 12 we'll ever see in tennis history. You know, again, I'm happy to put Peyton Stearns as 37 and 15 in the conversation, but we'll save that for a different time. That was just by win percentage. I just wanted to get a reaction out of DK, who gave me the exact look I was again for quantity listeners. versus quality. Just yeah, no, <laughs> I said the names. I agree with you. Like I do think, you know, it's funny. I'm looking at the under 22 rankings, and like I feel pretty locked in on those seven. Who, by the way, are all really young. Like you know, again, Sabalenka's 25, Shiantek 22, Golf 19. Rabakana, 24, Von Drusova, 24, Muhova, 27. Yes, Jabur, uh, Jabur, Pagula, both 29, Keys, 28, Ostapanko, still 26, but like they're all under 30. We could get this group for a solid half decade moving forward. Maybe you move in some pieces. And, you know, again, on the horizon, Chin Wen makes a quarterfinal. That was one of my bold predictions going in that this is where we were going to get the run she kind of needed to have to end this season as more than status quo. And I think she did that. You mentioned Samsonova, the tennis between her and Keys. I mean, I th- this is why I object to you saying Madison Keys doesn't have it. Did you see that Samsonova match? And then did you see the Pagula match where she was like, here, just give me your racket, Jess. You don't need that today. I'm going to be hitting winners left and right and just get your steps in because that's the only thing you're going to be doing on court in this match. And just like. And, and when were those matches? Were yeah. they in rounds that mattered? No, but again, you got you have to to get to it's the just, finals. It's just so you typical. have to win the round of sixteen. It's just so typical. You clog up the draw, and then you make a semi, and then you don't you don't you don't have the juice. It's just that's it. It's it's a shame. Maybe one day she'll figure it out. She's this is I will give her I will say this. This is the closest she has come. Okay. But it was still not enough. You know, okay. like they used to say about Surya Bonali on ice. She has improved, but not enough. Fair enough. I would say in waiting, Chin Wen to take one of those top 10 spots, Samsonova to take one of those top 10 spots, and then three names we've talked about all year, Potapova, Naskova, Kostyuk. Like, those are all young names who I've seen enough from this year to say, yeah, I think you're all— Some disappointing uh, fades from Potapova, from Kostyuk. Yeah, but Kostyuk drew Sabal—or not Sabalenka round one. She drew— Rybakina. Yeah. Allegedly, she told Rybakina that she—I want you to beat Sabalenka. Well— I I promise she did not end up keeping, unfortunately. The only asterisk of this match— uh, of this tournament is what if Rabakina doesn't get a round two withdrawal from Tom Janovich? Because I swear to God, that's why she lost in round number three. It's not having those consecutive match plays mm. to get calloused up. I just don't think she was ready coming out of the gates in round three. It's not an asterisk at all, but it's one of the things I will remember from this. Well, another asterisk is uh, what happens if Danielle Collins converts match point on Elise Mertens. Yes. I mean- I question. was very much aboard the Daniel Collins train coming into the tournament. Yeah. I had a phenomenal interview oh, with you, with her that I'm sure everybody read all 1500 yeah. words of, and she had a lot of great things to say is working with a great coach right now. Jared Jacobs uh, just was in a great headspace. Very surprised that she did not um, go deeper at this tournament. That was a big shame. And that she would have been in the, the Coco golf section. That would have been a really interesting match. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, all right. Well, last given thing- how it ended against Mertens, I guess maybe it wouldn't have been that interesting. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, it's fair enough. I guess last thing then on the women's side, I want to talk about the Caroline Wozniacki Memorial spot. Who's oh. in the race for slam number one um, more than anyone else? I have five candidates for real ones because the fifth candidate is Carolina Pliskova just on principle. <laughs> like if we're going to make this risk- list – she has to, unfortunately, still has be. Has Carolina Pliskova not been through enough? They put her on court 14 for her first round match. I forget who we were. Oh, Holger Runa. Holger, that's been like a million helicopter. years ago. Yeah. Talking about him on court five. They put former world number one, former finalist, Carolina Pliskova, on the most anonymous court on the grounds. And <laughs> I like when I was like offended for her. I came up, I was like, what do you think about being on court 14? She was like, I don't mind. I got to watch some matches on 15 and watch some matches on 13. It was good to get a little distracted because Carolina Pliskova, a notorious tennis fan, as, as everybody knows, she loves watching tennis. So no, I guess it was a dream come true for her. I heard you were so perturbed by the scenario. You glued your feet onto court 14. Is this true? I did. I did. Yeah. I, it took a little bit. I was, it was a uh, Elmer's yeah. glue. So I can't, it came right up, but it was a uh, little bit of glue stick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah. That's a shame. And then to lose to Clara Burel, who then did not show up against Zabalenka. I don't know. I don't know what, what kind of tennis Burel produced to be Pliskova that did not show up against Zabalenka. That was a, uh, that was a twist. Yeah, no, it was, it was a tough one. Um, anyways, I also as- thought you were going to talk about Wozniacki, who was very much my, this, that storyline did not pan out either. <laughs> I thought this was very much going to be a Kim Kleister's run from Wozniacki. And in, in the back of my mind, I was like, what it is was a good run, happening? Though. Fourth round, three set loss to the eventual champ. Like, it was a good run. It's not playing cool. again, allegedly, the, for the rest of the year, which yeah. I mm, don't know if that's a good or bad decision. I mean, I think I, I would have wanted to get some miles quickly. In. She did. And it started to really come together. She, her, USF was by far her most impressive tournament, yeah. start to finish. Plus, nothing warms you quite up like Adelaide 2. Like, Adelaide 1's just for S's and G's, but Adelaide 2 is when things get serious. Really answers all the questions I have coming out of Adelaide 1. Just, I'm going to pencil this in. It's my favorite in. sequel. Yeah, I'm going to pencil this in right now. She's your Adelaide 2 finalist. Just lock that take in. A finalist. Right, right, Give her yeah, the yeah, title, yeah. for God's no, sake. No, 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 no. No, because, like, Samsonova's going to come out blistering, and Samsonova's going to have a bad Adelaide 1, so she's going to definitely play Adelaide 2, and she's going to win it. And then she's going to lose, like, third round Australian Open. We're both going to be frustrated, but that loss will be to Noskova, who will then make Make her first quarterfinal and will make all of my she's going to be your breakout player of 2024 takes from December look very, very smart. And so I already have the script written for the next five months. Are we going to name the episode Samsonova and Delilah? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fourth on my list. Uh, (laughs) Carolina Mukova is most accomplished without a slam because she has made now semifinals of just about all of them. Um, she has made a slam final, 26 years old. Like, again, I have three players above her. I think she's fourth on the list. Fair? I mean, again, the Does fact that she belong that she was, on this list? It just doesn't it feel like Mukup is always on borrowed time. Like, it just feels like she sold her soul <laughs> to be healthy enough for these two slam runs. And, you know, eventually <laughs> the Piper's going to come for paying or whatever the, the metaphor is. I don't know. I just, is her body capable of holding up through seven matches i we don't know the answer yet i mean i guess technically yes because she made it to the final but can she do it enough times to put herself in a winning position i don't know it's just every time she's deep in a slam i marvel at it because i'm like wow all your limbs are still attached yeah um madison keys three fair it's not on my list (laughs) as far as i'm concerned it's never going to happen if it happens i mean it's it would be the least shocking surprising thing because everything about her makes you think yes how has she not won a slam for the last decade, but yeah. the reasons why are the reasons why. So it's sure. sort of this, she is, she is quite a conundrum as someone who uh, quite openly loves and roots for that kind of tennis. Yeah. It's 
diminishing returns. So semifinals at hardcore majors the last two years. I'm not willing to give up on it. Pagoulas, and what's the record in those semifinals? Yeah, not great. Uh, right. Pagulas too. Pagula was an interesting one. I really thought she was going to go deeper here. I really thought she was. I certainly thought she was going to be. It deep. felt like all the signs were aligning. I agree with you. Like, especially with how she got through week number one and, you know, got pushed a little bit in that third round. But it was like, no, I got through it pretty comfortably against Fidelina. Like, never really threatened. Yeah, that Fidelina match let, was yeah, really. That was a good one. To let, like. I mean, again, this is why I'm bullish on Madison Keys because I've just like if you have that ability, it's Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club adjacent. DK, she gets to hang out there on we weekends. Cannot she has compare for years. the amount of time we have spent waiting for Madison Keys to win a slam to Jessica Pagula. It has been no. a cool two to three years for Pagula, where I still feel like yeah. she's working her. I mean, we have been at this with Madison but, Keys since 2011. Lucy Saprova, Louis Armstrong, old Louis Armstrong. You're right. Stadium. But Pagula has also done what Keys couldn't, which is be top five for two years running. You know, Keys' career high is seven, and it's just a consistency week in, week out for Pagula. I know she Correct. doesn't have that breakthrough slam result. Like, that's why she has to be higher on the list, right? That's No, I, no I agree. I'm agreeing with yeah. you on there. I'm yeah, just yeah, saying yeah. I, I certainly have her much higher on my list than I would Madison Keys, for sure. Okay. This is and then- <laughs> Okay. The Madison Keys fans. I'm so sorry. She's a great yeah. interview. Tough I love talking for to her. Keys you gotta like rip this, rip this part of the audio where I say she's a great person. I really like her tennis. Like put that up on Twitter because I there was a lot of stuff I said before that maybe not be so flattering. I like it. Pagula two, Jabur one, because Jabur obviously multiple slam finals. You know, again has a thousand title to her name. I mean, those are that's my list. Jabur, Pagula, Keys, Muhova, Pliskova. Your list is different. God. Um, or is your list just one name? Maybe. And it's like I mean, Chin Wen or it's, yeah, uh, it's Potapova. Like, yeah, well, it's probably Chin Wen, Samsonova are my two most like Interesting. likely of the player. I would say probably, uh, oh God, probably Samsonova, Chin Wen, Pagula. Because again, like those two at the top have a much shorter, smaller body of work where mm-hmm. Jabor, we have seen her in three finals already and we've seen what she's done in those three finals. And the fact that she won any matches after Wimbledon to me is, I guess, uh, is quite a surprise. I mean, it was very much I, I didn't think we we're ever going to see Denise Richards ever again, Kyle <laughs> Richards. It just felt like that was like a career killing defeat. And I, even still, she was not at her best. You know, at the U.S. Open, she was very sick and still managed to win three matches. So, you know, maybe take that from that what she will. Maybe perhaps that's a, a testament to her um, resilience and tenaciousness that she was able to win those three matches despite being quite visibly ill. But then, you know, had nothing in the in the fourth round against uh, Chin Wen, who I think, again, I, Chin Wen should be everybody's pick to be uh, the next most likely to win a slam just because, again, very young, very talented, and is trending up. You know, a lot of these players on your list are either maintaining or maybe even trending down a little bit. Yeah. You know, no. We've seen them. We've seen them performed and tested at these slams enough times to not feel like, yeah, definitely you, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the, the problem with uh, yeah. prognosticating. I guess, I think you are correct in the spirit of your argument that look for the younger players who have that sort of ceiling that they flash, but maybe haven't quite hit yet versus these players where maybe we know their ceilings are a bit more defined at the same time. I don't think any of those younger players who I look to moving forward have shown the ceiling, you know, again, on the level of a Sabalenka, Sviantec, Goff, Rabakina, you know, Von Druseva, these slam champions we have right now at the top of the game. I think they might hog it for the next year. Like, I don't, I guess my question, my final question before we move on to the men's side, do we see a first-time slam champion in 2024? 
Like, it, what is your sense coming out of this year? Do you think we know the group at the top and they're going to hog them? Or are we going to keep seeing these breakthroughs? Because, again, with Goff breaking through, Von Drusova breaking through, Sabalenka breaking through, it's we another year with three first-time champs. I think that's – maybe that's a December question. I mean, I would think yes because okay. still Von Drusova and Goff winning were such – were fairly surprising, you know, we, within – I mean, Von Drusva came out of nowhere. Golf was maybe two, given like the two North and a half American months summer. notice. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Where that was a possibility, but we didn't come into it being like, yeah, definitely, Coco's going to win a slam this year. I mean, sure. after Wimbledon, we didn't think Coco was going to win a slam. We didn't I don't know. Was after, final. after Auckland, I was feeling pretty good. Not after Adelaide too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only she'd won Adelaide too, we all would have known. Exactly. That's the thing. No, I think that's fair. I think, again, that's more of a December topic, but... I do feel like we know the group. Again, the top seven in particular have been the seven best players this year. Eight, nine, ten. Top seven is a very funny number. Yeah, but but it's true, right? Like it is the top seven. Yeah, no, it's yeah. very much those. And it's I really do struggle to pick an eighth. That's, yeah, that's and, where I'm and at. And by the way, in terms of the year on points race, like Jabir's pretty locked in. She's got a 500-point lead on Madison Keys, you know, uh, about eight, uh, 700 points, excuse me, on Kvitova. Like, yeah, there's Guadalajara. I know San Diego's happening this week, which, by the way, Jabir's playing, so she's got the opportunity to extend her points lead. Ostrova, Linz, Kluge-Napoka, shout out. Um, I don't. I think our top eight is locked in. I think we know who's going to be competing in Cancun come the year-end finals on the women's side. It's a little more. Uh, it's a little less certain, excuse me, on the men's side. Now, we're not going to spend as long talking about the men's side, I don't think, as the women's side because it's just not as interesting, in my opinion, right now, given we know the storylines at the top. We've talked about the storylines at the top. Now, I talked about this a ton yesterday. It's uh, it's phenomenal that the Rubicon has shifted to is Djokovic the greatest men's tennis player of all time to know is Djokovic the greatest athlete of all time that's the conversation he wants us to be having now which I'm all in for you know I love goat debates DK I actually debated if I was going to ask you here just to offer some red meat to the fans in case we haven't done enough you debated a goat debate I debated should we have a goat debate today like is it worth having but I was thinking about I'm like it's not like I'm sorry. It's just not a race anymore. Like 72 total slams played, 36 slam finals, 24 slam titles. He's made the final every other slam. He's won one out of every three that he's played. You can look at the weeks at number one, the Masters, the fact that he's, you know, what's what's the record now overall this season? It's going to be laughable, but I want to say it out loud because it is that laughable. Novak Djokovic, age 36, he's 45 and five, winning 90% of his matches at age 36. And maybe there's a conversation to have about what that says about the quality of the rest of the field. And we can have that conversation perhaps here today as we get into what does the top 10 look like right now on the men's side. But I mean, in our 44-minute second set, that saw him very clearly say, look, I'm serving and volleying to your forehand. This is what I'm going to do on the do side every time. You're not going to beat me. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm also going to be willing to sustain these 25, 30-shot rallies because I'm sorry, Daniil, you can't hit a ball by me. Now, to Medvedev's credit, he said, fine, but I'm going to work your lungs, old man. And he certainly did. Obviously, the shot, well, I'll remember, 4-5, 30-40, 
Medvedev has the pass on the backhand wing, could have gone line with all that space we saw. He chooses to go low middle, which, by the way, is what you're taught is the high percentage play, jam their hands, make them do something special. It's just Novak Djokovic lives in the lane of doing something special, knocks the volley away, fights off the set point, takes the hour 44-minute set 7-6 for a two-sets-to-love lead. From there, you kind of knew the match was over. I mean, again, I like. what is there left to say about this guy, DK? You saw it in person. You saw the Shelton incident. Uh, incident. It's not even an incident. You saw the Shelton match, the hanging up of the phone. I've already offered my thoughts on that. I like energy. I like high-stakes smack talk. You talk smack, you're going to have it. Re- you're going to get it reciprocated. Um, that's good for everyone. Raises the stakes. You know, again, he dominated Taylor, dominated Ben, dominated Borna. The Medvedev second set was interesting. Yeah, he was down two sets to love against Laszlo Jura. I don't know a single person, including betting odds, who still had him as a favorite at that point of the match. Like, again, you were there. What did you learn about Novak number 24? Or through it all? Yeah, I learned that he's certainly still the best athlete in the field. I think that's really (laughs) what the big takeaway from that is. I mean, it, it was fascinating to see 30 plus shot rallies between someone who probably possesses the most textbook pristine technique and Medvedev. <laughs> you know, just sort of felt like those two things should not have combined for lung busting rallies. You would have thought that uh, Medvedev would have cracked far sooner or flummoxed Djokovic into an error sooner than that. But n- nevertheless, they persisted um, and did play probably the best set of maybe one of the best sets of the tournament. And then unfortunately for Medvedev, Medvedev, he was not able to convert it. And yeah, it sort of sort of made the best of five format feel a little bit hollow because I think everybody kind of collectively realized that the match was over at two sets and there was no, I mean, you put your entire self into that set and end up coming out of it two sets to love down. It's deeply unlikely you're going to come back and win th- three, four, and five against Djokovic. Like it really felt like the hook was was necessary, and and, and I think probably maybe to Medvedev's credit, he wrapped it up pretty quickly um, in that third set. But um, yeah, I think in terms of the debate and the stats, yes, I think the numbers are are and going to continue to be with Djokovic because when you compare them to currently retired Federer and soon to be retired Nadal, they're not going to be increasing those numbers at a rate that would compete with. Djokovic. And I think that is the time in which you're probably going to see a lot of debates that are less about numbers and more about dreams and starlight and things like politeness and grace and elegance and tenaciousness. And they won't be about numbers as much. And that's where I really shine. So I think I'm going to have a lot of fun podcasts about that. You and your numbers can have all the fun that you want. But I think we're going to have a lot of interesting debates that are going to not be so much grounded in the numbers. Um, well, it's because you can't debate the numbers anymore. There's just no You number. cannot. No, you, you cannot. He's put it to bed. I mean, there is still maybe some stats, some there'll be some narrow historical context, no, of, but this was happening at this the point. The argument for Rafa is what, sorry to cut you off, but this is the go, the best part of the GOAT debate. It's this like, is the numbers. Rebel on to. The argument for Rafa is what he's done at the French Open is the single greatest, dom, uh, the single most dominant thing any athlete has done in any venue ever. And I think that, you know, again, I would put Phelps. Beijing, I'm sure I'm missing some things, DK. There's got to be a figure skater who dominated for a decade plus that belongs in this conversation. There's countless other athletes, I'm sure, who belong there. Michelle Kwan Nationals, nine-time champion. Shout out. Um, I just like – I'm sorry. But like, okay, 
but Djokovic was the second best clay court player then and dominant everywhere else. And it's just like the totality of the other things. And by the way, look at what Djokovic did in Australia, which some could argue is almost as impressive as what Rafa's done at Roland Garros. And then there's everything else on top of that as well. Wimbledon and, you know, again, ba 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 He's doing this at age 36, a 90% win percentage. He's top 10 in hold and break percentage. You know, right now amongst top 50 players, Novak Djokovic is number one in hold percentage. He is holding serve more than any other player in his career, uh, in uh, in this season. And, you know, listening, because I got to watch the match with my brothers, with my mom, and listening to my mom just beg Daniil Medvedev. He's like, she's like, Alex, why doesn't he volley? Like, doesn't he, she, you know, he knows he I was he also getting texts from my mom right? asking for Medvedev yeah. to volley. That's interesting. It was, that's, mothers were feeling protective. Mothers everywhere. <laughs> yeah, versus my little brother who's vacillating back and forth. Medvedev's trashed. To, then after a 40-shot rally, wait, is this guy the greatest player I've ever seen? My older brother astutely pointing out, I'd point out, he goes, did Djokovic get a little thicker? He looks a little stronger, looks a little bigger. And I was like, yeah, he, he has because he hits the ball a little bigger than he used to and tries to end points a little bit more quickly, a little bit more dominant behind that first serve. He just keeps adjusting. Like, again, the arguments now for Djokovic are it's like Brady, Jordan, LeBron, Serena. And I don't think Serena's doubles accomplishments get enough no, Cloud, they don't get, a, get enough no, raise in this conversation. But this is what I said yesterday. I guess this is where I'll end it with Djokovic. To me, that's the conversation now. It's Djokovic Serena. Like that's it. That's it's now like you have your two candidates for the greatest tennis player of the modern era. It's Djokovic, it's Serena, and it's like at least statistically, and you can kind of go from there. Well, what I like about that is, and again, to take it away from numbers, <laughs> is that what actually yeah. also I think Serena and Djokovic have on their side is the technical impact that they have left on yes. the game. I think when you look at the subsequent generations of players, who were they playing like? They're not yes. playing like Rafa. Yes. They're not playing like Roger. They're not playing like even Justine, you know, or they're not playing like a Sharapovina. So they're trying to emulate Serena and Djokovic. I mean, Djokovic has, again, the most pristine textbook, te- like people will be referring back to his technique yeah. for decades. I mean, yeah. this is, he is in many ways the pioneer of this modern game. And so I think that is a really tremendous testament to his ability on the court, even more so even before he had the numbers. And now that he has the numbers, I think that's leaving the sport in a different place than how you found it. That's Serena and Djokovic right now. I mean, I think there will continue to be other debates (laughs) and I'm going to enjoy the reaction of those debates, but I think they're going to continue to be had. Uh, regardless of where the numbers end, but certainly Djokovic is looking to put himself in a position to put himself as in in as impregnable a position as possible with Goran Ivanovic saying that he's planning to play the Olympics in LA. <laughs> so it's potentially another uh, four to eight year career. Djokovic still wants to get that Olympic medal. And certainly that Olympic gold medal, I should say, because I believe he has a bronze from Beijing, but he still wants that gold um, given how things ended for him in, in Tokyo. Certainly wants another crack at that one. Um but even without it, I think, yes, numerically, it's all Djokovic. And I think even just in terms of legacy in, in ways that matter, he has he's locked that down as well. Yeah, I think Medvedev said it best. Dude, why are you still playing? Like, that was hilarious. And why are you still here? And I mean, talk about legacy. Yeah. Daniel Medvedev's legacy now is like the premier, like the premier voice of the game is yeah. – Really? I mean, because someone was trying to give me crap about it on Twitter. It was like, well, not always the case since 2019. And I was like, yeah, but then I think it was more subjective. And now I think it's objective fact that he is like 
the go-to person for a quote on anyone, anything in status quo, how as hilarious feel? delivery yeah. as possible. I mean, Jesse Pagula, also a really great quote. Yeah. Talked to her about anything as well. But there is something quite um, there's an honesty. It's just it it's a it's a oh god, what is the word? Candid. It's, um, no, yeah, candid, but it's like infectious. infectious. There's an infectiousness to Medvedev's delivery that just makes him bar none. Yeah. Like and you he can is, just tell yes. these on-court interviews that the, they're just waiting for him to like crack this phenomenal joke and just read yeah. the crowd to filth. I mean, it is just, it is no, everything. He has a tone of, look, I know what you're asking me, but this is what you want to hear with this question. And you can always tell what you're looking to hear. Yeah, exactly. The and big old wink. No, and look, the tennis he played against Alcaraz. I mean, match so, of the year. Fun fact. <laughs> uh, it was my youngest cousin's bat mitzvah this past weekend. I'll send you the photos because I look damn good in my suit. Um, and it's not even for me. I know you're a fan of Eric and Nick over Alex, but we'll have that debate a different time. Um, we, the night before, <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but my mom would get mad at me if I made that joke uh, on the pot. So I'm not going to make that joke now. My but, joke was just going to be, ladies and gentlemen, did you know Alex Gruskin is Jewish? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's funny. Anyways, my mom gave a speech the night before, and I was going to make a joke about that speech, but she'd get mad at me. And so I'm not going to make the joke about said speech, but she knows the joke I'm thinking of, which is why that speech will go down in Gruskin history as like one of these speeches. Like she gave an all-time speech, speaking of Medvedev. That's why I transitioned to it because – Laura Gruskin had a day. But anyways, my cousin's bat mitzvah was this weekend. So that Friday night, my mom hosted all the, my mom's side of the family to come have dinner. And during that match, we're watching Medvedev Alcaraz. And it was just like – and the best is my dad's like, no, don't turn on the TV. I was like, dad, I got to work. Like it's a work night. I, I kind of need it on in the background with no volume. And he goes, yeah, OK. He's like, that's really stupid. But OK, checks out. Um, and so we're watching it just like – to see Benfidev not make an unforced error, to see the physicality on display. This guy doesn't have an ounce of fat on his body. And then, you know, to be 6'6 and rain down 130 as well. He's now made the finals of, I think it's like five of the last nine hardcourt majors, something like that. And, you you know, you put that in perspective and you're like, you know, that is not a repeat. You know, that is something outside of the big three very few people have done in tennis history. And, you know, again, this gets me to... The top 10 conversation that we had on the women's side, I want to have it on the men's as well. The way we were certain about a top seven on the women's side, I'd say I feel pretty good about a top five on the men's side. Um, Obviously, Djokovic won. I don't know if you heard. He made all four major finals this year for the third time in his career at age 36. Sometimes you just ask yourself, what are we doing here? Oh, I have a stat. He is the first man to win three slams out of four, four times. Yeah. Say that. Say that three times fast. It's just like, no, <laughs> four times he's, yeah. he's won three, and he's the only man to do it. <laughs> yeah, because Federer did it the three times, right? Like oh six, oh eight, oh nine, or whatever. Um, yeah. Oh six, oh seven, oh nine. Yeah. Oh four. Yeah. Or oh four. Yeah, you're right. Whatever. In that range, you're just like, again, what are we doing here? Um, four, six, yeah, four, six, and seven. He's one. It's no debate. I think Alcaraz has to be two. No debate. And you look for Alcaraz again, semifinals and a title at the three majors he he played this year. Masters titles across surfaces. He wins Wimbledon as well, beating Djokovic in a final. The only guy who beat Djokovic at a major this year. Like, I just think he has to be in the two spot. I think Medvedev isn't it weird that Djokovic three, won but... three out of four, and yet we still feel like Alcaraz is probably closer to number one than 
those numbers. Well, well Alcaraz is going to finish the year number one because he's just going to play more than Djokovic yeah, will play the rest of the season. And Djokovic just said, I'm not playing until Paris. Like, I don't think we're going to – I think we'll see Alcaraz in China. Um, yeah, like, I mean, Carlos said – Carlos has won 90% of his matches this year. Like, let's, let's not beat around the bush. He's having a once-in-a-generation season for a guy under 21. And, you know, you look at the under-21 accomplishments. It's now him, Borg, Nadal. Like, that's the list. And he still has one more year to go, 21 and under, next season. A full five more slams, I think. Or he will play, yeah, five more slams before turning 22. So, you know, there's a world where he has three, four slam titles by the time he's there. And him and Iga remain on this very similar trajectory. That's interesting to see uh, in terms of not eliminated from the GOAT race. Anyways, he has to be two. He beat Djokovic in five sets at Wimbledon. Like in no world is anyone coming out of this. I know Medvedev just beat Alcaraz on hard courts, but in no world is everyone saying across surfaces, I'm taking out uh, Medvedev over Alcaraz, right? That would have been a very interesting player. The player of the year debate would have been renewed. If opinion. he won. If, if Medvedev he won had the managed US to Open. beat Alcaraz and Djokovic to win the U.S. Open. Because now that's, that's very a, interesting. Yeah, that would have been an all-time run. And then you would have had, yeah, the two for Djokovic, one yeah. for Alcaraz, one for Medvedev. The Medvedev's beginning of the season, plus U.S. Open, beating the yeah. two, at which yeah. none of, neither of them can afford because one of them is themselves. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they can't beat both of them. Very fair. No, and just, you know, again, I think that top three is pretty clear. I think Sinner has to be four. Like, he's just been that consistent at the majors. I know he lost round of 16 to Zverev at this one. But, Zverev, you know, Sinner's already made 10 second weeks at majors in his career. And it's like, this guy just turned 22. It's very well done for Yannick Sinner. I think he, he wins Canada. You know, again, he's in the semis or quarters, it feels like, of every big event. And you look at his overall record on the season. I think the numbers back this as well. Sinner 44-13. and 13, That's fourth best win percentage behind the three of Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Medvedev. You look at the advanced analytics. Three guys, top 10 in hold and break percentage. Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Sinner. I think he's fourth. I think he has to be fourth on the list. And I think that uh, there's a there's a delta after four. Yeah, it really just feels like a steep drop-off. After yeah. number three, to be honest, I mean, even even center, yes, probably the fourth best. But then you look at who's currently four through ten. Holger Runa hasn't won a match since Wimbledon. Is maybe on the bubble for making the WT, uh, WTA, the World Tour Finals. Um, Andre Rublev, eh, you know, quarterfinal run, the US Open, good. Taylor Fritz, eh, the way that he played against Djokovic, although played a really had a really good tournament to make it that far. And, and Fritz, by the way, had a really good hard court summer. Like wins Atlanta. I think he went semis of of uh, of DC. He or maybe finals of DC and lost to Dan Evans. He loses to Davidovich Fokina uh, to Demon Hour in Canada, but was up five one in the first set. Should have won that match in three. I'm pretty sure he had a decent Cincinnati as well. I want to say quarterfinals Cincinnati losing to Djokovic, quarterfinals U.S. Open losing to Djokovic. That's a top 10 summer. Like, that's a player who should be eight in the world, which, by the way, he is. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like, I agree with you. It's not the ceiling is about eight with that sort of summer. But eight in the world feels right, and you're absolutely right. So for me, and again, this is why this one's going to be a little bit quicker than the women's side because I just think the gap between – Again. Three and everybody else is just Well, so I'd big. say four and everyone else because I do think Sinner belongs so much. If I asked you who does Sinner belong closer to, the rest of the funky bunch or Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, you'd say that top three, right? Like where does his season belong with what he's accomplished this year? Really? 
Sinners had a good year. All right, we're doing it because that face you made made me really angry. holding up that Canada title is like something that equates him no. to the top three. No, I mean, girl. no, <laughs> Australia round of 16, five set loss to Tsitsipas. Um, I'm already annoyed. Go on. Indian Wells semifinals lost to Alcaraz. Miami final loss to Medvedev. Monte Carlo semis, three set loss to Runa. I like that one. Bad Roland Garros lost to Altmaier, but semifinals Wimbledon lost to Djokovic. Round of 16 U.S. Open lost to Zverev. He's made at least round four in seven of his last eight majors. He's, like I mentioned, 44 and 13, winning 77% overall. He's fourth in the points race by 725 points over Rublev. Like, it's <laughs> David's making a yawning face at me. It's snoring, ladies and gentlemen. He's closer to those three than the rest. He is the best of the rest. He is not close to the top three. I don't know if, if you I want to agree. put him in, if you want to put him in a league of his own, yes. But I think he needed to win against Varev, first of all, <laughs> the US Open, and he wanted he needed to have at least one other better slam result. The Altmaier loss, bad. <laughs> Five sets against Itzapas, bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. like this is these are matches he needs to be winning. And he got lost the win it. over Alcaraz in Miami mm. after losing to him in Indian Wells. Mm. Doesn't drop a set on his way to no drops one set on his way two sets to the he made the final he made the final Miami Patrick Kvitova won it yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry I, I disagree but that's fine he's de- listen he's, uh, is he above everybody else on that list yes but I think based on what Medvedev has yeah. done this year what Alcaraz has done this year Djokovic has done this year come on he's but four I agree he's four he's four yeah. All right, I have Zverev five because I think he's rounding back into form. I think we've seen pretty clearly. You know, he beat Sinner. He beat Medvedev during this North American hardcourt stretch. I think he has to be five given the uncertainty following the rest. Runa six because Runa, when he wasn't injured, was pretty clearly in that top seven conversation in a way. Just, you know, he was the Muhova, dare I say, on the men's side of this conversation. Just has been banged up. Um, And so he's kind of fallen out of it. But he earns the benefit of that to me because he was really consistent for the first six months of the year. Hardcourt's clay, uh, you know, especially during those clay masters events. He's six to me. I have an American question mark at seven. Because whether it's Fritz, Paul, or Tiafo, usually at any point of the calendar, one of them looks top eight. And by the way, 30,000-foot view, massive win for American men's tennis this 2023 U.S. Open. To get Fritz, Paul, Shelton, Tiafo all to the second week to have Shelton through to the semifinals. And again, just an American presence, obviously, with Coco taking the title. It was a big week for American tennis in New York. I have an American at the 7 and 10 spots. Because Hatchinov's been disqualified due to injury. I have American sandwiching Rude at eight, Rublev at nine. But I do not feel good about either of those guys in those spots. No. It's just it's a puzzler. I mean, yeah. to put together a top ten out of these names. It's just it's really I mean, we talk about the WTA, but I mean, damn. Like it's just yeah. I, And C belongs in this conversation too. But like but they're all, better none of them are really possible. trending up right that's now. So saying. that's why it's hard to like be like, wow. They, I mean, Demon Hour. Yeah, they just said that was just <laughs> lost a, to Met, lost to the my new favorite doubles team of Medvedev slash Inhaler. <laughs> like, come on. I, no, that's is, what I'm saying. It's like, and I mean, I'm my a, biggest disappointment of the US Open, can you guess? We Casper? just talked about them. Nope. Oh. Just talked about them. Uh, Holger. Big moment for American tennis, but not a big oh, moment for Tony oh, Paul. Not, uh, <laughs> well, but the thing is, Ben Bend, like, 
Here's the thing. The Tommy Paul gets a race because Ben beat Francis. Like, that's the thing is there is a little cloud over it as well. But I think he played better against Francis than he okay. did against – I think Tommy played so poorly. But here's match. the thing. If I'd have told you Tommy made semifinal of the Australian Open in round of 16 at New York to start the year, wouldn't you have said that's a very good season for Tommy Paul? It is. But in the context of this conversation of who are the top 10 players right now, I think if Tommy had a better U.S. Open, I would have been much more confident in putting him in the top 10, especially if sure. for nothing else, based off his summer, his 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 you know series against Alcaraz, beating him in Canada, almost beating him in Cincy. I mean, that's that would have been something to really write home about. And he kind of like that was that could have been, you know, top six, top five. I mean, especially again, given this competition, this was like a wide open space. And then the way that Shelton ended his U.S. Open in in a way that really did not much more than just irritate Novak Djokovic. <laughs> like, I mean, I listen, I will say that I think that he brought the absolutely correct attitude to that match and nothing else. <laughs> the execution was just so bad that. It canceled it out. You know what I mean? The end he, of the third set was fun when he found yeah. his way fighting back. But you're right. The first two and a half sets were to script. It he was went just, for that drop volley. And I was eh. like, girl, you got to move. Djokovic is going to knock that ball down your throat. Like he's just standing there like he just hit the greatest drop eh. volley of all time. And I was like, mm. <laughs> uh-oh. That's no, your I mean, friend. <laughs> look, it's really hard because statistically the arguments are pretty thin. Like you look at the most wins this year by win percentage. Like, you know, again, the dip between who's five after Sinner. It's Francis Tiafo at 37 and 15. And again, I have two American spots in my top 10. And for what it's worth, you look at the points race. Fritz is ninth. Tommy's 12. Francis is 13. Ben is 17. He's only won consecutive matches at the tour level in Australia and New York, and he's 17th in the points race. You gotta love the points, baby. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I mean, Zverev is eighth right now in the points. So the points race looks at fouls, and we really, there's a lot of Stefano Tsitsipas erasure there who hasn't had, he's had another status quo year, him and Rublev, who, by the way, Rublev wins his first 1,000 level title. He's fifth in the points race, pretty sizable 600 point lead between he and eighth place Zverev, but Rublev's fifth, Tsitsipas sixth, then there's a dip. Runa has a 44 point lead, uh, excuse me, has a 25 point lead on eighth place Zverev. Runa in seventh has a 44 point lead on ninth place Fritz. Then there's a 400 point gap to Kasparud in 10th. We could just go straight to the semis. Like, give me Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, right? I agree. Like, I'll take those top four at the year-end finals. The rest has been kind of meh. Like, Tsitsipas made the Australian final. That's what he's latching on to. Rude made the French Open final. That's what he's latching on to. Rublev and Runa have played a lot of matches. They've been pretty consistent. No eye-popping results at the slams. But again, you make a couple Masters final or win a title. In Rublev's case, you belong in that conversation. You know, again, after that, like, and Alex, if Alex Demonauer is ever going to make a year-end finals, this feels like the year. Tommy Paul, again, it feels like the you gotta, window You got to finish open. that voodoo doll for Alex Demonauer. This is what I'm saying. It's just, I don't know. I, I like I like a lot of these names. And for the record, a lot of them are still pretty young. Like, none of these guys are in their... I guess Medvedev's 27, but he's the oldest of the bunch. Like, Zverev's still 26. Obviously, Runa's still 20. Fritz, 25. Rude, 24. Rublev, 25. Like, these guys are either ascending towards or in the beginning of their primes. This is the group we have for the next half decade. It was not an inspiring end to the season from them. 
No, and I think that's what I mean. Because again, if we're going going through like who had the best seasons, yeah. yes, it's that it would be Sinner outside the top three, obviously. Yeah. Sinner, Zverev, Rublev, TFO, Tommy. <sighs> yeah, Tommy Taylor, and then Demon. Like that's yeah. the thing is we're getting thin. Because Casper didn't have a great year overall, yeah. you know, it's it's supposed to have a great year overall. You know, we we didn't really get a big run from a Hubie, certainly not from a Felix. Hatchinov was great till he was injured, and he's missed the last. Yeah, four Hatchinov months. had a really was really stringing together yeah. a great year. Handsome, handsome Karen. Unfortunately for him, did not show up uh, the last couple sure. of months. It's whoever comprises this top eight is, and there'll be eight interesting guys. It'll just they it won't be on the backs of this season. Weirdly yeah. enough, very like, this will be put. like long term potential being like these are guys that we're, you're going to want to see now when they're still kind of meh. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly might be great. <laughs> I'm fascinated to watch this because I want to see it sort itself out. I want to see these guys play one another. Let's roll the balls out. Let's figure out what the pecking order is, because after four, again, I'm very it's very unclear right now. And I want to see these guys play like I do think the end of the season matters. Who can gain some momentum heading into 2024? Because there are some spots open at the top of the game. And with that in mind, Andy Murray Memorial spot, who's most accomplished looking for slam number one. I think the five names are very clear. I think you go Sinner, you go Zverev, you go Rude, you go Tsitsipas, you go Runa. Like, that's the top five. That's the list. Uh, yeah, I, I probably would have Runa. You want to have Runa up higher based on how we ended last year and how we started this year. Um, been quite absent. Um, he was. I had him ahead of certainly Sinner and even certainly Casper. Um, but Casper had a better year. Had a better year at slams, I should say. Had a better slam result. Um, since the boss had a better year uh, at slams. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. fair enough. Yeah, it feels like the five names, and again, all of them but Runa have made us uh, and Sinner, I guess, have made slam finals. But Sinner Runa are the youngest of the bunch, and what we, they've done at the Masters event, the way they've ascended into the top ten, held their spots and consolidated so quickly. That's the list. You know, again, if we're going to get a first-time slam champion in 2024, I am very certain it will be one of those four guys or Alcaraz, Medvedev, Djokovic will be hogging all the slams once again next season, even though Medvedev didn't get one this year. Anyways, that's where we stand. 30,000-foot view coming out of New York on the men's and women's side. Now, there are two more storylines I want to touch on quickly here, DK, before I let you go since you have been so kind with your time. But it's your return to the podcast. We haven't gotten to talk to you in two weeks. Didn't you miss me, ladies and gentlemen? I have we, so many thoughts. <laughs> and we say storylines, results, and controversies. This is a controversial controversial storyline. Leave it in. Simona Halep suspended four years. It was announced today. Your reaction. Certainly felt like this was coming. I mean, it's for me, it's hard to emotionally. By the way, for a PED violation, should have mentioned that. Sorry, sorry, I forgot to say what it was for. If you are an hour and a half into this podcast, you know what Simona Halep has been suspended for four (laughs) years for. I'm pretty sure we have a sense. It's kind of like mob wives. She's gone away. She's away for four years and she'll come back, or maybe she won't. But what I was going to say was it's hard for me to engage in this emotionally because for me, it's felt like Simona's career has kind of been over since. Dubai 2020, right before the pandemic, when she won her 20th title, and you just felt like, wow, she is like, this is her peak. She's in her peak of the prime of her prime of her career. Had just won Wimbledon the year before, you know, had a good run um, at the AO, but you just felt like, you know, what things happened, how they happened, and whatever. Um, 
Yeah, so that's right. Semifinals against Muguruza, a match that she probably should have won and could have potentially won that that slam as well over Kennan in the final. But um, since she's been back, there's been injuries, there's been upheaval, there's been coaching switches. There was her loss to Daria Sneger, which may may in fact be her last career match at the U.S. Open last summer. You just felt like, wow, this is really going nowhere fast. Um, and then all this stuff that has come out subsequent to that, the you know her uh, testing positive for Roxadustat, a a uh, blood passport irregularity that came on top of it that further delayed proceedings her um assertion that sh- her uh supplements had been tampered with through manufacturing and the ITIA saying that there was not um there was too much of the substance to justify that excuse and her arguing in kind that this is in 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 fact something of a witch hunt because once uh the tribunals learned that it was her that they changed their vote to vote against her because perhaps they wanted to make an example out of her was seemingly her um, her argument. She's hired a communications firm to help fight this uh, on appeal. I, I would imagine, um, as, as they so often do, this will probably get reduced on appeal, perhaps from four years to maybe two years or to 18 months, maybe. Certainly seems like there's a preponderance of evidence. There's already going to be some questions about everything. I mean, the fact that this happened shortly after she changed her team and given who that team has worked with, you know, you you start to wonder, you know, is, is this a house of cards? Um, questions that are uncomfortable, you know, quite frankly, to ask because it start, makes you reconsider perhaps everything that you've been watching. You wonder, you know, just and there's a lot of um, extrapolation. If this happened once, how long has this been happening? I think the same thing happened with Sharapova, this idea that you've been doing it once, you've been doing it for a long time. And, it's, and certainly in the Sharapova situation, she said she had been using that substance for a, a big chunk of her career before it was um, made illegal or made uh, made a uh, an illegal substance to compete with. So, you know, it's it's a really, it's a, it's a very difficult situation because there's just a lot of moving parts and it's not, the story is not over yet. Um, I think for Halep, I think she's probably at least relieved to have something to appeal because she was in limbo for pretty much all year. But I think it would be very surprising for her to come back after all this. She is 30, she's my age. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to imagine her um, ma- mounting a serious comeback in two to three. She's been practicing. She certainly has a lot of optimism that she'll be able to play again. But um, I think effectively the career for, for Halep is over. And it's a shame because she was really, you know, coming into her own at a time when the pandemic and now this is really uh, handicapped it tremendously. Well, if they're missing so much of 2021, it was amazing how quickly she picked things up in 2022 and got herself back at the top of the game and in the top of that conversation. And look, there's a serious debate to have in the 2010s. We know Serena's number one. Who's the second best player of that era? Is it Kerber? Is it Halep? Is it Wozniacki? You know, those are the names that come to mind right at the top of the list in terms of who is the most consistent across events. And, you know, again, given the physicality she constantly displayed and how that was the essence of her game, you're absolutely right. How this hangs a cloud over all of that moving forward is absolutely devastating. And, yeah, just, you know, again, you hear so many issues, her constant complaints with how this process has played out, how prolonged it has been. You know, again, in a similar vein, we've obviously seen Jensen Brooksby come out and, and protest his suspension. Michael Emer retiring from the game after facing the prospect of a suspension due to performance-enhancing substances. 
it does feel like again this is just it's becoming a more frequent conversation uh about these suspensions uh suspensions these absences the criteria for them there's still not a lot of clarity um overall dk that would be my greatest sense of the uh from from this and this is just another instance of that and again you you mentioned everything from the health perspective who she works with etc etc it's disappointing it, it really is yeah and you're gonna get i mean i would say on the hall on the whole there has been a uh, there hasn't been a rush to judge Halla, yeah. perhaps in the way that there was a rush to judge Sharapova, Sharapova immediately. And yeah. whether that's learned, we've learned from not yeah. being so quick to rush Shar- to judge Sharapova, perhaps it's just a different situation where maybe there was not the same level of animus towards Halla than th- that there was towards Maria, that when something happened to Maria, people were very quick to jump on her. Sure. Um, so there's that, you know, I think there was a lot of, you know, full-throated defenses of Halla before well before any information came out that there was not that the, a level of grace that Sharapova was not given. And I think we are, I think even in light of the Emer and Brooksby, I think we are perhaps trying to approach these with a bit more care and not be so yes. quick to, to judge, which I suppose is, is good. But I mean, this is a very complicated world yeah. that we live in. This is a lot of things are happening. We don't know. We will perhaps never know that again, the totality yeah. of what is going on behind the scenes. And, at the end of the day, we're watching tennis matches, you know, with a lot of high stakes, a lot of high prize money, a lot of things are on the line, and perhaps decisions are being made, perhaps they're not, and we'll we'll probably never know the full extent, yeah. and just makes yeah. it that much more complicated when individual instances do show up that yeah. may or may not be representative of a larger atmosphere. It's also a lack of yeah. It's it's speaking to again. We talked about the conditions here, the humidity these players are playing through, the recovery, how essential that is, the need to recover, what enhances those recoveries, what substances are or aren't legal. There's a lot of education on those sorts of things that remains to be done for the general public. I don't know how much they care, but I do agree with you in the broader sense that we certainly take a lot more care in how we respond to these sorts of instances than we may have even three, five years ago and. You know, again, it's funny you meant. You know, this is a massive story. This is not the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Well, I got one more. But did you read the Washington Post piece about uh, the guy, the Turkish guy, who was the conduit for all the match throwing and the match fixing? Because it was an unbelievable two-part story. Not read it. <laughs> oh, put it on the list. I'm just saying. I know we only plug tennis.com and your. Work, I know. I was but... gonna say I read a lot of David Kane stories. Yeah, yeah. I highly put... recommend those. <laughs> I, I would as well. Are you gonna be writing about the WTA finals? Because that is the last thing I want to ask you about. We learn, as we've alluded to, they are headed to Cancun, and there was obviously a strong backlash to the announcement that they were gonna head to Saudi Arabia. I apologize, Johnny Bravo. There's going to be an intersection here of politics and tennis, the backlash being with a country with such a poor record on women's rights, with such a poor record on human rights violations overall. Should the WTA, a organization that has prided itself on the fight for equality, an organization that pulled out of China after everything that happened with Peng Shui, is that organization just folding in the light of the uh, the dollars being offered by Saudi Arabia? That was a legitimate conversation being had by some of the strongest voices and advocates we have in our game. And ultimately, that peer pressure, at least for the moment, seems to have won out. 
WTA Finals not going to Saudi Arabia. It's headed to Cancun. Now, there's certainly a conversation to be had. This is the second straight season where we're two months away from the event, and you barely know where it's going to be. Baby, the third straight season. Yeah, the th- third straight <laughs> season. I forgot. Yeah, that we didn't know that it was going to Guadalajara, Guadalajara as well. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> you know, again, I, now, I've tried to block out that Muguruza run because it just makes me sad to think about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a conversation as well. Your thoughts on all of it. This is well, where we'll I, end the show. I did report the story for Tennis.com when yes. it broke. I didn't have too much advanced knowledge that it was going to happen. It, things happened quite quickly from this seeming inevitability that it was going to be in Saudi Arabia to a last-minute pivot towards Prague and or Ostrava. And then the, the Santos-Hoy family who organized the tournament in Guadalajara sliding into home base and uh, and picking one up for Cancun. Um, a, a victory for those who like beaches, <laughs> I must say. Um, I think the upshot of the Saudi story is that while it is over for now, it is perhaps not over indefinitely. And with maybe more uh, preparation, there there may be a revisiting of this uh, country as a destination for women's tennis. So just because we may, people may feel like there has been a victory now does not mean that this is always going to be the case. And it has been an interesting conversation, to say the least, led by uh, our very own Minister of Happiness, Anz Jabour, who... Um, I don't know if you know, went to a a women in business conference in Saudi Arabia once. And um, that was a big part of her evidence that the country is uh, liberalizing and turning around uh, within five days of her making those comments. um, uh, There was reports that a man is being sentenced to death in Saudi Arabia for dissonant tweets or dissonant Twitter likes and or dissonant YouTube account, which has, I don't know, tens of followers or even less than that. So makes that tricky to consider when you're perhaps a journalist or social media manager, considering whether you want to come to the country and and work and report on the tournament. Um, WTA, obviously a a business that is comprised of many women, uh, LGBTQIA employees, makes it also um, a complicated uh, thing to consider. Um, So... We don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of years. I mean, as you as you pointed out, the WTA has made quite a few seemingly principled stances, whether it was pulling out of China in light of Peng Shui, whether it was pulling out of Russia in light of the uh, continuing conflict with Ukraine. Where do we draw the line? And it seems that, you know, perhaps um, they were willing to not draw the line with Saudi Arabia now that they have because of the tremendous backlash led by your Navratilovas, your Edwards, your, you know, perhaps people on the board were uncomfortable. I can't speak to anything definitively. I don't know that for sure. I would, I would recommend any reporting from uh, John Wertheim, who certainly seemed to have the inside track on these things that was as it was unfolding. And I don't know anything beyond what he said publicly. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's a very tricky one because yes, on one hand, we've had, you know, Tournaments in the Middle East, Doha, Dubai, you know, we've never been to this as an untested country with who is not, we don't have, you know, 20, 30 years, whether it's China or or Doha, Dubai, of, of having these tournaments set up. This would all be very brand new. Um, and and who wants to be necessarily the test subject um, as those tournaments find their legs. So all of which to say, I am looking forward to being in Cancun. <laughs> I would be very happy for it to be in Cancun. Uh in perpetuity, I feel like that would be a phenomenal place to end the season by the beach. But I am not—I am not a vote on the board, unfortunately. Yeah, no. I mean, again, it speaks to the financials. It speaks to where we are moving forward. And if they're not going to take revenue from China, if they're not going to take revenue from Russia, if you're not going to take revenue from Saudi Arabia, where's the revenue going to come from? 
to put up these events if you're the WTA. It's a legitimate conversation. Yes, these principled stances, to your point, are remarkably admirable. It's something the WTA has stood for throughout its founding. What arguably got them their title sponsor from Hologic. uh, No, absolutely. The question is, again, though, at what point do ethics become compromised when you have to sustain a living, when you have to, again, make this a formidable business, make it possible to provide – a lifestyle for all of these athletes who are competing and striving to, again, be professionals full time. And obviously, we just saw the ATP tour announce the, you know, the guaranteed salaries for the top 250 players. You know, the WCA will obviously be feeling pressure to do so as well. And again, financially, how do you afford to be able to do so? Well, it helps to get large sums of investments from people like this Saudi-backed investment firm that have obviously started investing in golf and various sports across the globe internationally, it is a fascinating conundrum. It's a fascinating place tennis finds themselves in. Obviously, again, in theory, you'd love to say, no, we're going to stay away from Saudi Arabia. We're going to stay away from any of these countries with any sort of questionable human rights histories. How realistic is that for the tour moving forward, I think, is a serious question. That requires more reporting. And again, you're right. John Wertheim's been the best on it, but I meant you've mentioned you've written on it as well for Tennis.com. And it's something that we'll certainly be monitoring down the season's home stretch. All that said, DK, hour and a half show. Did you miss us? It's great to have you back. Any final thoughts? Any things you need to plug? I'll add that we're very close to two hours. I don't know if we edit out some ums and ahs that that narrow it down to 90 minutes, but I certainly did miss this. It was a shame that we weren't able to speak more during the Open. Mm-hmm. was carrying on some ridiculous hours, getting home at 1, 2 in the morning a lot, uh, and taking early evenings when perhaps I shouldn't have Ostapenko, Shriantek, Sabalinka Keys, being like, mm, this is going to be over quick, and then they, neither of them were. Um, but certainly glad to be back and hope everybody missed me. And I was happy to interact with everyone with whom I interacted at the U.S. Open who are listeners of the podcast and hope uh, to see more of you as I continue to be on site over the next uh, couple of months. Cancun's a big spot for the mini break. So if you are on the grounds, again, we – what's it called? I've never been to Cancun, but I know there's that one bar that everyone goes to or whatever. Uh, mini, that's a frequent spot for the mini break listeners. I mean, so, I mean uh, to bring it back uh, to Housewives, I was thinking of Puerto Vallarta, which is a yeah, popular sure. destination of Housewives of Orange County. There's an, a restaurant called Andales. Okay. I was very excited by the prospect of getting to go to Andales before I realized that Puerto Vallarta and Cancun, opposite ends of Mexico, not anywhere near each other, unfortunately. Full circle here. That's actually a yearly trip to Andales is something they're trying to negotiate in their unionizing talks. Obviously, yeah, so, it's, yeah, it's there a big you one. go. Yeah, so it's that, that's actually one of the sticking points. Uh, so it's fascinating. But yes, with all that said, we did miss you. We loved reading you. We're always happy to have you, though, on our show. And, you know, we've talked about where these top tens are. Here's a little foreshadowing listeners we may have dk and his dear friend who we finally got to meet gil gross back on this show later this week to talk a little bit about where things go from here moving forward all that said a shout out to dk a shout out as well as always to our super producer daniel westoff who has what sort of an editing job to do dk he does a an editing job what can he be does. said day in day out makes all of our content here possible at crack Rackets. so shout out to him shout out as well to our friends at tennis point tennis-point.com the promo code is CR15. With all that said, for our fantastic David Kane, the super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Das Vidania.